Welcome to Books of Titans. I'm Jason Staples, together with Eric Rostad, and this podcast is dedicated to the influences of influencers, the books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectual scientists, and others. And we'll talk about what makes these books so important and influential, and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about these important works. Welcome back to our reading cave, everybody. As always, I'm Eric Rostad. And I'm Jason Staples. And today we're going to cover Natural Born Heroes by Christopher McDougall, a book focused on a daring band of misfits who mastered the lost secrets of strength and endurance and kidnapped a Nazi general. Uh, first, we're going to start with who recommended this book. So I'm going to hand it off to uh, Eric again for that. And Laird Hamilton recommended this book. He is at Twitter at... Laird, L-A-I-R-D, Life. And he had the presence of mind to marry Gabby Reese. And he's a famous <laughs> surfer. Yeah, he is a famous surfer, first and foremost. Uh, actually, I have a funny story about Gabby Reese, who's uh, one of the most famous alumni uh, of my alma, one of, one of my alma matres, uh, <laughs> but uh, of my undergraduate and master's alma mater. Uh, Florida State University. Very proud to have Gabby as one of our uh, illustrious alums. But uh, I got a funny story about that because uh, Gabby was at Florida State at the same time as one Dion Sanders. And uh, a friend of mine who was at Florida State at that time, uh, who was a part of the athletic department, uh, and he was also part of that athletic department when I was a part of that athletic department years later, uh, once told me that, uh, that Dion... Uh, you know, first of all, he had the utmost respect for Dion. Dion was a super hard worker. Was you know always treated you know the people uh, around you know the the program and so on well and all that. And he said, but you know the funny thing was, there is only really ever one thing that Dion ever wanted that he couldn't have, and that was Gabby Reese. <laughs> He said Dion tried so much, like he he really you know pulled out the stops. Like he would go to FCA with her and sit next to her and like clean up and everything else. But he said the one thing Dion Sanders ever wanted that he couldn't have was Gabby Reese. Well, wow. Laird Hamilton not only had the presence of mind to pursue Gabby Reese, but he landed Gabby Reese. <laughs> So there's that. Uh, and, and, you know, they are a power couple if there ever was one. Right. I mean, they um, they uh, they they've just, they live very free lives, uh, which you can do if you're a superstar uh, surfer and one of the top beach volleyball players to ever play, I suppose. But uh, but no, I mean, they they uh, they they have really dedicated themselves to living uh, sort of non-standard lives. Uh, you know, they uh, have referred to Hamilton and Reese as a, a sort of uh, uh, Sports Illustrated has referred to Hamilton and Reese as a, a part of the quote unquote Malibu Rob or <laughs> Malibu Rob. I'm leaving that in there uh, as part of the Malibu mob, uh, sort of a, a, a celebrity group that uh, that that, you know, includes uh, Chris uh, Chelios, uh, John Cusack, Kelsey Grammer. Tony Danza. So if you want to know who the boss is, well, he's a part of their group. Uh, you know, 
Ed Ed McNeil or Ed, o, Ed O'Neill, uh, Max Wright, uh, John McEnroe, and now uh, Tim Ferriss has sort of uh, worked his way into that group. As has uh, the supple leopard himself, Kelly Starrett, and uh, of course then uh, you know as uh, Eric you were you were saying just before uh, that uh, Tim Ferriss kind of got a a two for one, actually more of a three for one uh, when he interviewed Laird Hamilton because. Uh, he, you know, he managed to also get Gabby in the room, and also uh, who else was it again? Uh, Brian McKenzie was was also there. So the the chapter in Tools of Titans it has all three of them together being interviewed. So that's kind of a cool cool chapter. Yeah, that was a that was also a good podcast episode if you haven't heard it. So um, so anyway, that is our uh, our recommender. Uh, as for the author himself. Uh, Eric, you definitely know way more about Christopher McDougal than I do. Uh, that's at McDougal Chris with two L's, M-C-D-O-U-G-A-L-L, Chris, uh, on the Twitter box. Uh, and Eric, you, you've got, you know way more about him than I do. You've read some of his other stuff. This was the first one by him that I've read, but uh, go for it. Yeah, and in, in, uh, in talking about his Twitter account there, he, uh, he retweeted one thing that we did for uh, Books of Titans on Twitter. So he's very active on Twitter, and um, he'll, he'll communicate with you on there. If 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 you do end up reading this book and, and want to get in touch with him, um, he'll probably enjoy uh, hearing from you. So uh, Christopher McDougal, McDougal is probably best known for being the author of Born to Run. And that is a, a running book that came out, I believe, in around 2012 and had a huge impact on the running world. He had a lot of uh, interesting stories in the book. It, it basically it, it goes down. He goes down to Mexico and, and finds this uh, tr- tribe in Mexico that's really been untouched by the modern world. And these guys will um, will just go out and run for 100 miles at a time. And they're they're ru- they're running in uh, sandals, uh, you know, very like leather leather bound sandals and very low to the ground. And so he makes some. Uh, some conclusions from that book that uh, that perhaps we were not supposed to run in Nikes, but we were supposed to run closer to the ground and and potentially even barefoot. So it, it, it kicked you mean, off this. You mean we didn't evolve to wear Under Armour or Nikes or, or Asics or whatever? Yeah, wow. According to him, no. But um, but yeah, so it, and it's one of the books that had a really big impact on on my life. And uh, I, I actually wrote a, a blog post on the Books of Titans website of the nine most influential books in my life. And, and um, this one was included on that, the, the Born to Run. Uh, the most influential, not necessarily my favorite, but, but the books that had the biggest impact in my life. And, and the, the main thing it did for me was to change the goalpost in a way. Up to that point, I was just running... Uh, short distances in, in this book, you know, it's talking about guys going out and running a hundred miles. Uh, I'd never heard of ultra distance running, uh, ultra marathons. And, uh, he follows a number of different, different runners. And so really good book. I, I, I send it to a lot of people who are, who are into running. Um, and we'll, we'll talk a, a little more about it later. And, and, but it's kind of Chris, Chris, Christopher McDougal style to, take a random story and uh, go to the place where it actually happened and then connect it somehow to something physical. 
So Christopher McDougall himself lives in, in rural Pennsylvania, where he remains active around his home. So going on to the next section, which is our favorite quotes, I had two favorite quotes from this book. And the first was the simple one of uh, be fit to be useful. And I thought that was such a perfect way to approach working out, to approach physical fitness, uh, basically to be fit, to be useful to others, to, uh, to be able to, um, to do things for others, to help, uh, not necessarily be able to lift 800 pounds, but to, to be able to, to be useful. Uh, I thought that was just kind of a neat, neat way of, of thinking about, uh, physical fitness. The second quote was, uh, just a random one where he's introducing a, a character in the book. And he says, Tim Todd, the retired Oxford de- detective turned Sherlockian war historian. <laughs> and I just kind of thought I, w- I would love to have that title someday at, at some point in my life. And uh, so I may start working towards that. What, <laughs> yeah. did, what did you like, Jason? Yeah, well, you, 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 you really took one of mine. I mean, I love that be fit to be useful quote. It's, it's very close to uh, some other quotes in, in the past that I've really liked and, and, and it it sits pretty close to home in terms of, of how I think of, uh, of fitness and what the purpose of working out and all these other things are. I mean, it, it, what good is it if it doesn't actually have some sort of functions, you know, some way of making you better so that ultimately you can be useful. You can bring better stuff to other people's lives. So that's, that's one piece. I I thought I I did like that one, but uh, a couple other ones that I really liked, uh, one was, uh, about um, the, and we'll get to this a little bit later, but uh, about a scientist who ended up changing his view uh, and found himself, as it says, you know, he thought when he changed his view, when he found data that that contradicted what he had, uh, what he had uh, had previously thought, he he thought that you know this was uh, this is Noakes who who uh, is was uh, doing all sorts of uh, work on the on nutri- uh, on nutrition and also on uh, on uh, hydration and all this. Well, anyway, uh, when this guy uh, realized that there were that there were that the, the data actually contradicted his prior position that he'd been pushing, he figured it says the scam was so outrageous. Noakes was sure it would explode as soon as it was revealed. And then there's this great quote. Instead, he found himself battling the mafia of sci- of science, as he calls it, doctors and re- researchers funded by corporate war chests. And that is so true in so many ways of lots of science especially in areas where there's a lot of money to be made, like, you know, sports drinks or nutrition or whatever else. And it's, you know, it's true across the board. It's true uh, even in my, my field, uh, which, you know, is it more in the humanities and social sciences, you'll see these sorts of things happen where, you know, there's money involved. And as soon as you get money involved, well, <laughs> uh, it's hard to change momentum and inertia in, in, uh, in research because you're, you're potentially threatening a lot of, uh, of, of, established positions in the field. So that's one. Uh, another one that I really liked is uh, this comment uh, uh, by one of the, the people from Crete uh, after World War II, uh, where it says, uh, 
one of the reasons that the Germans ultimately didn't succeed in Crete, not to spoil the, the plot, but I think we all know that the Nazis didn't win, uh, it says, it, it, uh, Yorgos was explaining this, and it says, the Germans didn't know us, and they, they believed they could not lose. They believed they'd never have to look anyone in the face and explain. They'd never have to pay for what they did. And I believe that is why we defeated them, because we have to answer to one another, and they did not. And that's a great yeah. quote, because that, that idea awesome. of communi- communal accountability being so important to things like nutrition or just general health and the success mm. of a community, I, I think that's, that, that, is a, uh, that is an underrated, understated uh, uh, thing that, that, that this book does, does get at a little bit. And I think it's a... Uh, uh, I think it's a, a, a nice a nice quote to to start with. It's one of the other ones that I I would put in there. So, let's go ahead and move into the overview and initial reactions to the book. Uh, I, I you know I, I thought this was this was uh, this is definitely an interesting piece. I think your your initial reactions uh, probably matched mine, as, at least as far as the the overall picture. Yeah, and and uh, before we we hit record, just. Uh we asked each other if we'd ever even heard this story before <laughs> and ne- neither of us had, which is just, it's, it's shocking to me. Yeah. It's such a good uh, story. That this, such a good story, but such a pivotal, it had, it had a very important role in the war as well. I mean, um, there were, there were compared to other places where Hitler was trying to go. Crete had very few people compared to these other places. And yet it was a thorn in his side for a long time. He just couldn't get past Crete and Crete was kind of a, for him to go further, he had to get past Crete, and he, he, he couldn't do it. They needed to use uh, it as a staging for their other operations in the east, yeah. Yeah, and and uh, so for, for it to have such an important role and then to, to kind of learn more about that role, uh, I mean, that that would have been enough of a book for me without without the uh, the other aspects that it, that, it, that it went into, which were, were also entertaining. But, um, but yeah, the, so the basic premise of the book is... Uh, the Nazis uh, try to to take over Crete, and um, while they're there, the Cretans decide to kidnap one of the Nazi generals, pretty much in broad daylight, just to be as brazen as actually uh, uh, absolute possible, and to to kidnap uh, one of the two generals that that is on the island, and so we that the the book goes through that story and. Uh, and then describes how these Cretans who were on very minimal diet, if if some of you even were e- able to eat at all uh, during a lot of this time, how they were able to, to climb these mountains, get around, do all this uh, against the, the largest, most feared army of, it, of that time. Yeah, to me, this the, the, the actual sort of biographical or um, historical part of this book was just really well done. I mean, it's gripping. It is extremely well told. And the way that he weaves that in and out and kind of leaves you hanging for more of that story is masterful. I mean, he's a really, really good, a really good writer in the way that he, he presents this story. He gives you just enough to tease you wanting more and, at the same point, really does a uh, he does a good job of, of of bringing out details that 
of the of the countryside and all these other things in in the sort of his historical investigation part of the of the of the story to say okay well this is these are obstacles that they would have dealt with in this process and here's how they went about you know solving them and all that to me that that stuff was all really well done and yeah and that's one thing I really appreciate about Christopher McDougall and both both of his books is that he goes to those places. He he wants to meet the people. He wants to um, to see the landscape. And so he's not just writing from Pennsylvania. He's he's flying to all these places. He's uh, he's trying out a lot of the physical things and uh, the diet and and just to to really put himself there. It's the luxury of having a decent uh, advance on the book, I suppose. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, but no, I mean that, that I think you know all of that was was just it, it's again I I was kind of surprised that I hadn't heard of this story before, given how just gripping it really is. It's 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 one that it should be optioned for a movie. It's the sort of thing that that absolutely first of all it could be a great comedy if you want to do it as yeah. kind of one of those. Uh, comedy thrillers where you know there's various little things that go wrong uh so it's a thriller with some funny parts i suppose is the way to go uh and it just it would be a natural a natural sort of again not you know i am a sucker for nazi movies so maybe that's part of it but uh you know that that um it, it just strikes me that this would be the sort of the sort of story that a lot of people that a lot of people would enjoy uh partly because he does it he also does a really good job of bringing out the character of a lot of the figures that are involved in in this plot to kidnap the Nazi general, and you know, highlighting people on both sides and 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 fleshing them out and explaining how this person works and how this person thinks and giving the background of this crazy person who's part of the plot and all that, all that stuff is really well done and it happens to be presented in an order that is I think really natural and it's the sort of thing that must have taken. Uh, a, a tremendous amount of outlining and a good amount of organization to get it to get it just right. And I have to wonder whether he wrote, you know, the 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 sort of novel part separately from some of the other pieces, or whether he really did put it together in this kind of order uh, uh, in the original outlining. It's one of those things that, as a as a writer myself, I, I have to wonder how he how he did that. But um, but I, I thought, you know, on that on that side of things, just really fun, really enjoyable. On the flip side. Um, and yeah, you start laughing because you know a lot of the scientific stuff or, you know, quote unquote scientific stuff. When we start to talk about, you know, what made the Cretans so great and what distinguishes them from us lousy non-heroes, a lot of that stuff I found to be uh, hyperbolic at best and sometimes bordering on pseudoscientific uh, and there are places where just sort of simplistic explanations or in some cases not exactly correct explanations but hyped up explanations are are put in in place of uh of of maybe a more even-handed way of presenting you know well you know maybe you know exercising on nautilus equipment all those years isn't correct well yeah that's right you know that 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 uh, trend for a long time of, you know, going to big box gyms and working on the machines, working out on the machines was, was, was not the best way to get fit. But this whole idea of, you know, fascia power and some of these other things I found just overly hyped up and really not, um, I, I have an allergy to that kind of, to, to some of the kinds of, um, uh, anecdotal, 
and uh, and hyped up explanations for how things work physiologically and so on without a little bit more um, more grounding on some of those things. It just to me that that was a bit of a turnoff at different points in the book, and some of those things, you know, some of the connections also between the two halves of the book. So, you know, they, oh, you know, the, the Greek, uh, the, the, these Greek men were, were so heroic and were able to evade capture and all this because of fascia power or because of, you know, natural movement and because of, you know, specific, uh, you know, dietary things and, and such that, that, that come out in this book. I, th- I think some of those connections were really tenuous. And you know, rely a lot on anecdotal evidence and just, uh, in some cases, sort of sketchy correlations. And a lot of it's interesting. And in some way, in and in some of those areas, I'm actually pr- fairly partial. I'm actually, in some way, some some ways, I'll tend to be more biased towards the argument that he's making. I just think it's overly hyped, and that's mm-hmm. that's where I wound up kind of wanting him to slow this down a little bit. This is swinging the pendulum a little bit too much in terms of how this works. And, you know, not all this works exactly the way that, that you're suggesting. You know, if, we, if you follow the Maffetone diet exactly, it's not going to work for everybody to be a super athlete on this diet because there are other requirements of different sports that are, that are going to work differently. So things like that, I, I found I, that was my big picture kind of, that was the that was the negative side of this. So I really enjoyed the read. Actually, I enjoyed the read across all of it, but there were parts of it that it was like, mm, man, I, this is just. I wish he wouldn't have hyped this up the way that he did. Yeah. Well, did you? I had a quick question for you. Did you try the snap push-ups? <laughs> no, I didn't try the uh, the snap push-ups pres- uh, exactly, or you know, some of the. Um, the specific recommendations or whatever. I didn't uh, begin par- begin uh, practicing parkour, although it's, you know, par- I do think parkour is, is terrific exercise and it's a great way to stay fit. Uh, I just happen not to be all that good at some of those things. And I've got other things that, you know, I do for, for fitness as well. So, you know, and, and a lot of natural movement stuff on, on my end. But no, I, I did not try the snap push-ups. Yeah, I, well, and he, he has different things t- throughout the book like that and and uh yeah the connect the connection not all that great but uh but i i enjoyed reading about that and um i even tried the the maffetone diet for two weeks and basically the the maffetone diet has you cut all sugar and carbs and just eat fats and well, that so was I, that was actually the uh, the two week test, right? Yeah, yeah. Yep, so what, that, that's not what he's. So I, I just did it for two weeks. Yeah, that's not the suggested diet all the time, right? This is just a no, question. No, no. Like this is the two week test to see what you can add in, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's and so basically after the two weeks after eating just fat, you you're to reintroduce the the other items back in slowly to see and then see how you feel when you eat each thing to to see if you. Um, if you if your body doesn't handle something well um but but the the interesting thing that happened to me during the maffetone oh and by the way way, just for for those listeners who are interested in this and we can put it in the show notes uh that uh that two-week test uh is available at philmaffetone.com that's p-h-i-l-m-a-f-f-e-t-o-n-e.com 
and it's the carbohydrate intolerance and two week two week test. PhilMaffetone.com slash two dash week dash test. Uh, you can you can take a look at how that works there uh, if you're if you're interested. Anyway, so Eric, you went yeah. ahead and, and did this, and it's to test carbohydrate intolerance and so on. Yeah, and and and, the, and he's presented in the book is working with uh, with some ultra distance runners. And, and also some uh, musicians, uh, Flea from uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, <laughs> and um, just some other people who I guess are, are doing uh, a ton of um, physical activity. And if they're having, if they're having uh, any ailments or, or pain in their feet or anything, uh, they, he would have them try this diet, and, and it was helping people get through pain that they had not been able to get through, and and then to also lose weight and to drop times on their, on their running. So it intrigued me enough to give it a try. Uh, at that time I was, I was starting to train for a marathon, my, my first ever marathon. Um, and, and I was just curious about that. Uh, I've also, I've run a lot, uh, over the last five, six years and I've not lost any weight. In fact, I've, I've gained weight. And so I've, I've, clearly understood that just running by itself is not going to drop weight. I, I, but for some reason I had always thought that it would, if, if I ran more that I would, <laughs> that I would lose weight, but it, but it's really it has a, a lot to do with diet. So, yeah. I mean, the, the rule of thumb is that body weight is like 80% diet, maybe 90% diet, 10% activity. Although, you know, muscular gain can change that a little bit, but it's, it's much more tilted towards, towards diet. Yeah. And just, I, I just had never thought about it or read about it. And so th- this was really eye-opening for me because I lost 13 pounds in two weeks on this Maffetone diet and I ate constantly. I was eating steaks. I'm eating burgers. Uh, I mean, not like all the bread and all that, but just the, the meat part of the burger. The patties. I was, yeah, the patties. It, it was good kinds of uh, fat, like uh, avocados. I was eating a ton of almonds. One thing I found interesting is that in the book, Christopher McDougall said he loaded up on cashews, but I went when I went to philmaffeton.com, he said no cashews for this this uh, this diet. So there, there were like some in- inconsistencies there too that were just kind of weird because uh, it was a definite no for for Phil Maffetone, but but uh, Chris McDougall went nuts on on the on the cashews. But uh, I just kind of looked at, at what he suggested for those two weeks and, and ate, and I ate constantly. I ate all the time. Uh, the, the other part of this two week test is to, when you are then doing any physical activity and in my case running is to keep your heart rate below 180 minus your age. So at that time I was 36. So I was to keep my heart rate at 144, which meant I ran, I went from running around 730, 745 per mile, just for fun to going like up to 10 and a half minutes per mile just to stay under that 144. Uh, so I did that for two weeks just to see what would happen. It was really a test, uh, to lose 13 pounds was a huge eye opener for me because I was running these long distances and never, never able to lose any weight at all. And here I am just eating a ton and I, and and lost 13 pounds in two weeks. So I haven't, I haven't weighed myself. I probably I probably gained all that back. Um, uh, just well, for those of you out no, there, Tom, probably I, probably not not as much. Just because I, I have 
I have changed my diet quite a bit since since doing this two week test. Yeah, just so just, maybe maybe in the middle. Just for those of you out there, uh, <laughs> Eric's pre uh, pre test <laughs> diet was essentially that of either a hummingbird or uh, Buddy the Elf. So um, <laughs> I mean, not exactly. Uh, the uh, the sugar free diet uh, b- beforehand, so so yeah, that any sort of cutting out of sugar <laughs> was a yeah. radical notion. Yeah, I, I was actually afraid that my body was going to do weird things from not having sugar, but <laughs> it it ended up being fine. I, I I was a lot more tired than usual. I noticed that I would sleep more and um, would just have to to go to the restroom more because um, I guess. <laughs> I wasn't having as much stuff that kept the uh, the liquids in, so <laughs> yeah, so I, I've gone on about that a lot, but but it helped me understand, you know, in the future if I do want to lose weight. Uh, I just ran a half marathon this past week and was talking to a guy afterwards who's run thirty plus marathons. He was telling me something that each pound you are overweight uh, adds three minutes to a marathon time. So if you're 10 pounds overweight, that could be 30 minutes. I, I don't know. Yeah, that's a good rule of thumb. Yeah, that's a good rule okay. of thumb. Okay. So if, if, if I did really get, want to get serious with a marathon and, and try to drop time, I, know not, I now know how I can, can quickly drop weight and, um, and, and then be able to keep that off, I guess, by, by continuing on with that with that diet. Although, you know, again, even Mapitone doesn't suggest staying on the two week test version of the diet uh, mm-hmm. long term. I mean, he, he suggests adding back some of these things and just determining what it is that your body doesn't tolerate as well. So just again, for the listeners out there, I, I suggest you go and read his his thing. It's also worth noting, by the way, as well. I found one of the oddities of this is reading this book. You know, he had to go out of his way to, you know, find this guru this unfindable guru in the wilderness this phil maffetone and uh maffetone now um has quite a professional website with lots of (laughs) dietary advice and everything and a Mm -hmm. and a really nice uh you know cleverly done uh graphic design for his name and everything else up there i mean there's a lot of stuff here that uh you know he apparently you know he was uh, by all accounts in uh in uh McDougal's book, you know, just getting him to talk about this stuff was kind of pulling teeth. He wasn't really interested in, you know, talking about a lot of this at the beginning. Well, now, I mean, he's got a website with all of this stuff and he's got, you know, Maffetone events and, you know, lifestyle stuff. And I mean, you talk about someone who has really uh, decided to jump, jump back into all this uh, big time. I mean, he's got some upcoming uh, speaking uh, engagements in Australia and in the U.S. And this is spring 2017. So definitely not just hiding out in the desert anymore. I mean, he's, he's definitely moved back into, uh, into some of this stuff as well. But uh, let's go ahead and move a little bit past just talking about the Maffetone two-week test and some of these other things uh, and get into more of the, of the spoiler zone, uh, the, the nitty-gritty a little bit uh, of, of this book and, and some of the things that stuck out from the... Uh, from the narrative itself or from, you know, some of the things about, uh, about, you know, parkour or whatever. And actually, you know what, I think for, for a lot of this, what we'll do is we'll just, uh, we'll just give you a spoiler warning. If we're going to say something specific about the, uh, 
about the narrative itself that might spoil that. But otherwise, we'll go ahead and just talk through some of the uh, the exercise and uh, and other such in this. It's it, this is a little bit more difficult one to to divide up this way because of the way that the book is interwoven. But let's go ahead and move on to some of the other things that this book really addresses. And and one, I know one thing you wanted to talk about was some of the uh, parkour, you know, freeform type stuff uh, in this book, and you know, the natural movement. Um, theme that uh that that is one of the uh one of the running themes throughout this book so uh what what did you have to say on that what what what, what specifically did you want to address there well I, I i had not heard of parkour before um really and so that was inter- yeah that was interesting to me I, I looked at some videos to to see what it was and um so i, I enjoyed learning about that uh, but basically the in the book it, it's presented as uh kind of a free form almost a a springing hop uh, because Crete is is full of mountains, and to, to get around these mountains, you, uh, you 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 have to hop, but your foot has to be in the right place, and you can't. If you step on one kind of rock, it'll tear your your feet up or your shoes up. Uh, so really, this bounding around, uh, being able to get up, and it, it uses less uh, power if you're if you're kind of bounding like that. And yeah, and that that's just not true. Uh, you know, this idea that, you know, oh, well, it's going to, you know, they're exerting less force or whatever, or, you know, it takes less power to do this kind of bounding gate or whatever. Uh, power, it's going to take the same amount of power, regardless of if you do it by bounding or if you do it by walking, if you do it, whatever. Power is power, right? I mean, bec- it's physics because, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't take less fa- power because physics and, you know, if you look at the definition of what power is in physics, it's just a measure of, of work. It's the rate of doing work. And so if you're moving something up a uh, so, you know, it's, it's work over time, basically. Right. So uh, basically, if, if you're moving something that's 200 pounds up a hill at a certain rate, that gives you your power. That's your power reading, and that's not going to change. If, you know, if you're going the same speed, the same rate, moving the same weight over the same rate, then you're ultimately going to get the same power output. It's not different. So it's it's to me, you know, again, let's not let's not make claims that that aren't really supportable by you know physics. Anyway, so the, the, if bouncing or anything else that's not going to it's not it's not taking necessarily less power it may take actually more power because you might be doing it faster than what you would do walking but i guess if he's comparing somebody bounding up a hill to somebody who's jumping from one point to another there's i guess if you're bounding you're well bounding is jumping yeah, but but uh, like parkour, you're just—it's a constant movement. Movement. You're not like stopping at one thing and then and then jumping to the next. Stopping. Jumping, it depends. Like I mean, sometimes just, sometimes you know, in parkour, people people stop and do whatever. You know, they have to get their ba- bearing and so on. Again, you're trying to get from one place to another as fast as possible. But the thing is, parkour requires a tremendous amount of power. You have to be really athletic, really fit, to do parkour well. I mean, you look at top level parkour people. And they are, they are athletic freak shows, man, because they, are, they produce a tremendous amount of power to make the leaps and the bounds and, and the pull-ups and the muscle-ups and all the stuff that they have to do to be, to be good par- parkour practitioners. You have to be a really, really good athlete to do it. 
Mm-hmm. So it doesn't take less power. It takes more. Now, the place where I think he's right is that, of course, brings up the question of, well, how are these guys who are smaller, you know, not necessarily, you know, bulging muscles and all this producing the kind of power necessary to do this kind of bounding uphills and so on and to be so seemingly tireless in the process. And that, I think, is is the way that that needs to be framed. And, and he does he does more or less get to get to thinking about things that way and get to presenting things that way. Although, again, I think some of the some of the ways that he frames it is a little hyperbolic. Mm hmm. So, but anyway, back to back to the parkour, back to the you know bounding up these hills and so on, seemingly effortlessly, and you know getting through this tough terrain. You know that is a worthwhile thing to to investigate. And 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 so uh, now that I've had my little rant, uh, let's let's pick back up to our regularly scheduled podcast. Yeah, one one other thing that I I thought was cool is uh, he ref- he kept referencing. The, the Man Who Was Thursday by, by Chesterton. And he describes it as the classic espionage novel about bomb-throwing anarchists who avoid suspicion by acting exactly like bomb-throwing <laughs> And he just, he kept referencing that because that's exactly what these guys did throughout the story. Uh, to kidnap the, the Nazi general, they, the, uh, after they kidnapped him, they had to get through an entire area that was completely controlled by the Nazis. And they did it by pretending they were, they were Nazis. Like they had the the flags on the car and it's, so it's a car full of, uh, of, of Cretans with, with the Nazi journal in there. Uh, and, and they just drove right through this and this area controlled by, by the Nazis. And Hiding so in that, plain that sight. was, yeah. Uh, just the brazenness of, of what they did was awesome. And then in, by extension, uh, Jason, you mentioned the beginning of the, just the characters of, of all who was involved in this. And it, these were not soldiers per se. They were, they were guys picked out from uh, Oxford. They were guys <laughs> picked out from, uh, from their, their teaching or, or their, their, uh, their Graduate studies. studies. Yeah. Yeah, and they, and they were they were inspired by uh, T. Lawrence, who was another Oxford man. So uh, just this this thinking in different ways about war, thinking about di- different ways of of how to to do things, and that ended up by uh, you know kidnapping a, a Nazi general was was one of the most damaging things they could have done to the Nazis because th- there was no trace of the guy. They couldn't they couldn't find him. They didn't know what what happened. Um, and so it was it was just a brilliant thing that they did, but it didn't come from the war office. It really came more from from these intellectuals who uh, who, who try to think of, of things differently. Yeah. And, and actually, you know, we'll get to this, uh, you know, in our in our concluding thoughts. But that that actually gets to a big a big point in this book is, you know, is is how often thinking outside the box is actually key to success. Right. That the Nazis underestimated the Cretans in part and also these graduate students and you know these various plants by the uh by, by the uh uh the British Empire uh they, they 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 underestimated them in part because they just assumed that they would do things sort of a normal way and as soon as you start doing things outside the norm you potentially get 
results that are outside the norm. Now, those results might not always be good, but you're at least not going to get the, the guaranteed negative results of, you know, the Nazis just running roughshod over you. And that, that is, um, that, that, that was something that I, I think is, is worthwhile from this book. Now, getting back, by the way, to the parkour and uh, some of the free form stuff, uh, you know, you had uh, you, you had connected this in in our notes. You'd connected this to some of your early life stuff, I think, uh, mm-hmm. as well. Some of your own training and how that 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 worked in uh, with you. Yeah, and and so when they were talking about uh, free, or when Christopher McDougal was talking about free flow and, and balance, he he made some comment about an eighty-eight mark center line. Um, and it just, it made, uh, basically like you're having balance and all this, and that's a, a very key component of it. And it just made me remember when I started playing the violin, uh, I started when I was three years old and I didn't play an actual violin until I was four years old. The first year was learning how to stand. The first <laughs> entire year was learning how to stand. It was the balance uh, I mean, there's a very specific way that you stand so that you're, you're balanced, that you can move between the legs, uh, like you can't be pushed over. And I held a macaroni and cheese box with a ruler sticking out of it to mimic a violin and then uh, something in the other hand to mimic a bow. But the, that first year, the entire year was about balance. It wasn't about music. It wasn't about um playing violin it was just learning how to stand and in the meantime we're listening to to songs uh and all that to to get to the violin part but um that to spend an entire year just learning how to to stand and how to have balance and how to properly stand uh is just something that that i remembered in in when they were talking about how important balance is to kind of the the basis of a lot of this this stuff it it uh it triggered that that memory yeah and and I, I, again, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of truth to a lot to much of what um, McDougal's talking about in in addressing human performance and and a lot of things that are neglected by traditional or what has become traditional, which is actually fairly nouveau uh, types of training. And you know, like when you go when you go to a gym and you just you know step onto the machines or step into the machines and you know you do the bench press machine for a little bit and then you know maybe you uh or maybe maybe you're maybe you're one of the stronger guys and you wind up on the uh, on the actual bench press apparatus with a barbell you know you do a few barbell exercises then you go to the machines and maybe you run on the treadmill and all this and there's a ton of truth that people who do this stuff it's it's not by coincidence that the guy who that that these that guys who've been doing this, you know, they've been going working out three, four times a week. They're they're you know for the last ten, twelve years, they go out and they're playing one of their company softball games, and a guy rounds first base and he blows out his knee. Right, this well, stuff the happens. Other, the other thing it made me think of is uh, I listen to some different Navy SEAL podcasts, uh, and they they always talk about the the guys who are so fit who come into um, Hell Week, and they they. You know they can they can kill it in the gym. They can lift however much, and they're some of the first guys to go out during Hell Week because it's not it's not it, it goes back to that quote: "Be fit to be useful." Like the, these guys are are muscular, they're huge, but they're not useful. They're not they can't they can't use that in 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 doing. And granted, it's going to be the ultimate test during Hell Week, but they're not able to do the the even 
the what the first day is uh, requirements. Yeah, and and we saw this all the time, you know, in football. This is something that we used to laugh about back when I was when I was playing football. Uh, that you'd have these guys that were just muscular, super, you know, looked like, looked like, you know, there's the, the, the old saying in football, you know, look like Tarzan, play like Jane. And, you know, I remember back again, there's a great story about this back, uh, at, back at Florida State years ago. Uh, there was a guy named, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to give his actual name on this podcast, but there was a guy who just was, he, he, looked he looked the part of a of you know a division one maybe nfl linebacker i mean could bench press a house you know could squat (laughs) like crazy just tremendous tremendous physique on this guy and people called him zeus right that was that 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 was what they called him and he he walked on and i was a walk-on as well so no no shame in that and you know i wasn't very good either so you know I'm, i'm not i'm not gonna uh you know make any i'm not lobbing lobbing stones here in that regard but this story uh is that you know they got out there and zeus got on the field and he was on kickoff coverage and he got out there first time on kickoff coverage gets blocked and gets put to sleep on the field just gets not cold wow (laughs) and one of our offensive linemen seeing this on in the film room just loudly goes, no longer am I calling him Zeus. That's, and then he calls him by, the, by his first name, which was much less imposing than Zeus, I can tell you. And it was hysterical. Everybody laughed, but the thing is, everybody knew that there were those guys. They, you know, and you see this in the NFL Combine. You see this all the time, that these guys would... You know, they, 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 they looked the part in shorts and, and, you know, we had, we had words for, for some of these guys as well. They'd be, you know, shorts, all Americans. And then as soon as you get in pads, you actually have to go to combat, which is really what football is, is it's a form of combat. American football is, you know, it's, it's, it's very physical. Those guys struggled because it doesn't always translate. And that tells you that something's not right about the way that a lot of us actually train in terms of thinking about fitness and you think about the traditional way you know that a guy might you know typical say i'm you know i'm 35 why you know how i might go about a workout i might go in do you know a few sets of bench press let's say i divide my you know typical bodybuilding split i'm going to go ahead and do you know back and biceps today i'm going to do chest and triceps tomorrow and then i'm going to do a legs day or whatever and then as a, as a way to maintain my cardiovascular fitness, I'm going to go ahead and spend some time on the treadmill. Well, that's great, but what have I done that has any twisting to it? Mm-hmm. Nothing. What have I done that requires any degree of mobility and moving my body through space? Nothing. I've just run in a straight line. And that, that's not actually going to prepare my body to do anything really useful. And I mean, how often do we actually, you know, get under something, put our shoulders up against something and then press out with our arms? We don't do that. Yeah. Right. So this is where I think the, the focus on natural movement in this book is really good, actually. I think I think McDougal's emphasis on like, get out, get outside, find a jungle gym and do some pull ups or work on the monkey bars. I think a lot of adults would be shocked at how hard it is to actually work to do stuff on monkey bars, like to just, you know, do what you would do when you were a kid. Like that stuff, especially as you get your body weight up, that stuff's hard. 
Hmm. And you know, I, I, I've been uh, in my uh, my brother-in-law, my other brother-in-law, uh, my wife's brother, uh, you know, broke his neck in in August, and so I've been helping him uh, retrain. Uh, you know, he's very fortunate to be to be walking well, uh, but I've been helping him retrain. Uh, now that he uh, now that he's getting back and he's trying to get get back to you know to pretty much normal, well, we've been going out to an outdoor jungle gym, which is fortunately at the uh, at the school you know I'm teaching at NC State and he's a student at NC State. We meet out there at this outdoor jungle gym and we do a bunch of pull ups and swing on the monkey bars and you know work on gymnastics rings and you know today we did a bunch of bear crawls and and different movements that are natural movements. That, you know, listen, you do a bear crawl for 100 meters, and it's shocking how difficult that can be. And it's a different way of moving your body through space. You start doing things that involve cutting and twisting and all these sorts of things. And if you're not used to it, you'll, you'll hurt yourself. Because, you know, unlike kids, we're not used to going out and playing like that. And that's mm-hmm. why that guy, you know, Kelly Starrett talks about this, that, you know, the, the guy gets out there. After doing all these workouts and he's been working in a single plane, but he's not been working mobility at the edges of his flexibility. He's not been working strength at the, at, at the edges of his, of his flexibility. He doesn't have real mobility. He doesn't have the ability to twist and to turn and do all this other stuff. And he rounds first base and he tears an ACL. Hmm. Right? And this is where actually listening to what McDougal says in this book in terms of get outside, find a jungle gym, do an obstacle course. Get off the freaking treadmill. I, what, what, never, what I will never understand is going by these gyms and there's all these people inside running on treadmills when it's a beautiful day outside. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what are you doing in there? Like, a treadmill running is awful. Why are, you in, why are you inside running when you could go out to some field somewhere, you know, just like a football field or a track infield or something, take off your shoes. There's very little that's more pleasurable than, than being on freshly cut grass in bare feet. Mm-hmm. It's just so nice. Take off your shoes and do the same run. And yeah. it's so much better. And while you're at it, like work in some dodges or play tag or, or chase someone around, kick around a soccer ball. That stuff actually really does, you know, play some pickup soccer or, you know, or flag football or basketball or something, you know, that stuff actually is both a lot more fun than you know the sort of as as McDougal talks about the Schwarzenegger fueled sort of bodybuilding influenced kinds of workouts. It's a lot more fun than that, and it's more effective in terms of being fit for life for most people. That doesn't mean stop lifting weights necessarily. I mean, if if everybody just went and did that, then you know <laughs> you're not going to be a very successful football player if you stop Olympic lifting, if you stop squatting, if you stop doing some of those major strength strength movements. You're, it's not going to work. You, you need to do those strength movements. You know, the Olympic lifts and things like this, those are great lifts. And this is where, you know, this is where the success of CrossFit has come from, is integrating a lot of these things with natural movement, with, you know, all of these other aspects. Although, again, I think CrossFit a lot of times underest- or un- underplays the, uh, the role of twisting movements and, and, uh, and uh, cutting and these sorts of things. It's, 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 not as widely practiced at, at a lot of CrossFit gyms as it, as it should be. Although, again, that, that community is constantly learning and, and, and changing, so I would expect to see that, that starting to happen a little bit more as well. But to me, that was one of the things that I thought was, was a good takeaway from this. Was as you're looking at the parkour and, and the freeform, some of the claims about it 
were hyperbolic. Some of the things about, oh, well, you know, this is about fascia power instead of, you know, muscular power. No, that, that, I'm sorry. It's just not true. <laughs> That's just not true. Yes, the, you know, we are discovering that the body is more interconnected with the tendons and all of this, and that all of this is connected to the larger fascia that surrounds the musculature like a sheath, and that all of this is much more interconnected than we thought. But, you know, this idea, you know, there's this one quote where he says, fascia power is an egalitarian and almost undepletable resource. And, you know, the, the Cretans are working off of fascia power rather than muscular power. And that's just not the way this works physiologically. I'm sorry. I mean, it sounds great. And, you know, in some cases, this egalitarian stuff, it sounds really terrific. You know, in one place he says, well, you know, there's no real physiological reason why a woman can't throw, uh, can't throw, can't throw a ball or throw something just as, just as powerfully as a man. Uh, sorry, that's just not true. Once again, that's just not true. The, 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 the bone, the bone structure the general, uh, uh, the aggregate lower body strength and the, uh, and the overall strength differences between the sexes on the aggregate is going to produce a 20 or 20% or so difference in throwing power with two people of, you know, analogous training or a little bit more. I mean, men are, men are going to be advantaged there. It's just reality. It, you know, and, and height also matters when you're throwing, when you throw overhand, yeah. especially, you know, a six foot five guy has an advantage serving in tennis or throwing compared to a six foot one guy. The levers are longer. So, you know, some of these claims about the egalitarianness of some of this or, you know, that- well, he brings in uh, running for women and says that the long, longer distance running women are closer. Well, that's true. To me. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But it's not. It, it, but that's that's not saying that. Yeah, that's not saying. That, you know, when you're getting throwing and things, throwing is a power movement, and as soon as you get higher power requirements, where you're you're having to do something, uh, where that involves moving something more quickly through time, the shorter the time domain, the more that's going to favor men. Mm-hmm. That's just the general rule of thumb, and it's partly because of uh, of weight ratios. Women have less weight to move through space generally. Uh, it's partly because of of uh, uh, of musculature and all these other things, but uh, and and also actually women have a tendency to be able to push through pain uh, on the aggregate. They, women oftentimes can push through pain a little bit more than men, uh, when especially when it comes to endurance stuff. There seems to be some research that has backed that. Uh, and again, these are all aggregate things, but. Uh, but, you know, as you get, you know, longer distances, longer time frames, it does start to favor women instead of men. But once again, women still, even at the very longest distances, tend to be behind, the top women tend to be behind the top men and women on the aggregate are still behind men. It's just it, the, the gap narrows to almost nothing when you're going 250 miles. You know, women are basically going to be just about the same speed as men. But when you're going a mile, no woman in the world is going to run with the with elite men and, you know, equal training men are going to have have an advantage. That's and there's nothing wrong with that. That's just that's just nature. That's the way things are. But don't and again, don't tell me that we're talking about fascia power. The fascia doesn't move itself like this idea that you can just snap like with the fascia. No, (laughs) no. The snap comes from the musculature as well. Mm-hmm. Right. The, the, the way that the tendons work and the tendons are part of this larger facial organization. 
the tendon is pulled upon by the muscle that is fastened to the bone by the tendon. Now, the tendon has its own stretch, yes, but how much that stretch can actually do is also dependent on how much power that muscle can, can handle when it's contracting. So the muscle forces the tendon to, to contract, to shorten, and then you get a little bit of additional stretch reflex from, from, the, uh, from the tendon, from, from the, the, the facial connections, but it's not happening without that muscular contraction. So you can't train one without the other, really. Now, especially now, the, the, one of the things that is different that, that is different is you can train for explosiveness. You can train for better power output, for more efficiency. And if he had talked about that in those terms, rather than talking about fascia power versus muscle power, now we're talking in the in the realm of of what you know general uh, exercise science is is fully aware of, and this is where basically that research goes is. Yeah, you can train for more explosive exercise. I mean, this is one of the first things that you learn when you're learning to Olympic lift and when you're learning to do different things in, in power sports is to use the stretch reflex is what it's called, right? You allow the muscle and the, the tendon and all of these things to stretch just a little bit and to, you know, to let that, to sort of let it get to the stretch point right before you really contract it. And if you let that stretch happen just a little bit before you contract it, you're going to get much more power than if you just try to go from a static position. And it's because of, again, the way that the muscle and the, the tendon and all these things stretch, and you can use that additional stretch for to produce a slightly longer lever and some of these other things to produce a lot more power. That's what this is about. And that's that's... That's where, again, you can do this by training in lots of ways, plyometrics, by, uh, by doing you know, Olympic lifts, by doing a lot of different things that, that train you in that way. And again, natural movement is, is what this is about. Your body is designed to use that stretch reflex to produce more power. So in that sense, absolutely right. But in this idea of like, oh, you know, the entire establishment has been convinced that, you know, we get our power from our muscles, but now we've discovered that it's really the fascia. N no, no, they, they work together in an integrated fashion. And we're, we're still learning to some degree how all this works most efficiently, but you can't, you can't make it in either or. And that, that, that's one of the things that, that drove me crazy in this. Yeah. And... <laughs> I guess to, to take it uh, a, a different path here for a second, uh, one thing I did appreciate the book, about the book and, and that I've seen as a common theme through through some of the other books of Titans books is um, is doing these small everyday steps. Oh, yeah. um, how how that and he even talks about it in being the heroes uh, that these uh, the, that these guys are the heroes. Uh, it's 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 not this romantic Hollywood idea of all of a sudden you just become a hero, but it's it's the idea of doing things, small things every day, and for when the time comes where you do need to act in a in a heroic way, it's going to be a natural thing. It's not going to be um, something out of your character to all of a sudden to to become a hero. Uh, in in that theme played throughout the book in, in different ways. And then it's also been in, in a lot of the other books of Titans books. Uh, so it was, it was cool to see that, that pop up in, in this book. Yeah. I, I really liked that as well. I mean, again, I, I'm, I'm being 
maybe a little overly critical on some things, but again, that was something I thought was really valuable. And, and, uh, and, and I think reading through the narrative really highlights that point really well, because you've got these, these Greeks, these, these, uh, these Cretans. And the reason that they are such a handful for the Nazis is not because they suddenly became something other than what they were before. It just happens that the the very lifestyles that they'd been living before and the kinds of communities that they were already enmeshed in happened to be the kryptonite to the Nazis war machine in that particular location. Mm-hmm. It was who they already were. And this is again getting back to your your quote, your favorite quote here from the book of training to be useful. This is something we should all be doing. We should all be training constantly every day so that whenever we're needed for something, whenever you know, the thing that, that is, that it can help somebody else is there. We're ready to do it. We're ready to help. We're ready to, to, if, you know, emergency strikes or if it's not an emergency, but just somebody needs assistance on something, or, you know, we can, we can do something to better, better the lot of our fellow human being. We should always be pushing to, to make ourselves the kinds of people who are ready to help, who are ready to make things better. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, that's not something that comes in the moment. It's something that you, you, you prepare for, you know, this is, you know, that, 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 that quote of, you know, we don't, uh, we don't rise to the level of our expectations. We sink to the level of our training. And that, that is very much the kind of thing that we see here that, uh, you know, I, I thought was an, again, a really nice point. I, I liked that. Yeah. A couple other things also for me, do you have anything else, uh, in terms of the nitty gritty stuff? No, that, that was, uh, the main ones for me. I've got another couple. I'm gonna I'm gonna bellyache for just a little bit more. <laughs> another couple minor minor things. One was uh, again this hyperbolic discussion of some of the old Greek heroes and things. Uh, looking at you know, this is this is I, I need to I need to come up with a word for this uh, about using Greek or some ancient language or some foreign language and finding a a, a, a completely typical word and then making that word means something like in and of itself that is almost fetishized uh and and nowhere is 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 this a worse phenomenon than in a lot of churches for example you hear this all the time and only in in, you know it's almost almost it's its own thing in 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 church contexts where you'll hear like a pastor say oh well this this is from the greek word and then He'll talk about this particular Greek word and say, and this Greek word means, and so then he'll, you know, preach this particular message that's based on this special meaning of this almost mystical Greek word that nobody, of course, knows what, you know, knows to question it, but this mystical meaning because, you know, words in Greek have like their own specific meaning and we can count on this, but that's not how language works right? Words don't have meaning outside of context. Mm-hmm. And so like you get this one spot in, uh, in chapter 12, where he's talking about pankration and, you know, this concept of, uh, uh, you know, how could the Greek, he- how did the Greek heroes fight? Well, they used pankration, right? This is the secret Cretan martial art for how to use fascia power. And then he explains that, you know, Theseus fought with the Minotaur and won using pankration as he had no knife. 
quoting Pindar's fifth Nemean ode. And then he explains, Pankration basically means total power and knowledge, but the word resonates deeper than the definition. It's associated with gods and heroes, with those that conquer by tapping every talent. Pankration is a fighting style that not only combines boxing and wrestling, but exceeds them with the savvy of its own. And I'm sorry, I, I actually, I, I do classical Greek. Like that's one of my, one of the things I have a lot of training in. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, but that's just BS. It just is. <laughs> it's BS. Pankration does mean like all power, like total power. And all it basically means is you're, you're putting your whole, you're, you're, you're using every resource at your disposal. So it's like say, it, it, uh, it, an equivalent word in English would be to say no holds barred. I mean, it just means like using everything, like anything is permitted, essentially. And so, yes, it became, a, it became an, an Olympic sport. And actually, it wasn't actually no holds barred. You were not allowed to bite, uh, gouge, you know, like, you know, basically gouging out eyes or, you know, putting your finger, you know, in someone's nose or mouth or whatever, trying to do that. That was prohibited. And you were not allowed to attack the other person's genitals. Other than that, anything goes. It's a no holds barred thing. And so what all prankration means is using whatever techniques or resources are available to you. It's not like some special, you know, secret martial art that has its own specific techniques or whatever. By definition, the word just the, the word is talking about in when, the way that this is working. The word is talking about just uh, use it's no holds barred using whatever. So it's not that like oh it's these techniques and not these. No, whatever techniques can be learned, you add in, and that just becomes more of the, of the total force that you can produce. So it's not like this, you know, this, this uh, secret, you know, this special fighting style. It's not a fighting style. You know, again, Pankration is a fighting style that not only combines boxing and wrestling. No, it's not a, a style at all. It's something that includes anything, anything that you might do whether it's, you know, throwing sand in the eyes of your opponent, whether it's pulling a knife, whether it's pu- whatever you can do to produce to to bring about to use your force to to vanquish your opponent, that would count as, a, you know, in, within pankration. Now, as a as a sport, yes, there are rules. You know, there were there were kicks and there were, you know, uh, there were strikes and, you know, there were wrestling moves and all that, very similar to, you know, mar- uh, uh, mixed martial arts today. But again, mixed martial arts, what is it? Is it, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu? Is it uh, Wing Chun? Is it, what, what is it? Well, it's whatever you're allowed to do within the, within the confines of the rule, within the confines of the, those specific rule limitations that are there, that stuff is what it is. So it's, it's like that. And, you know, he's talking about, you know, this as if it's some special style and it's not a style. You know, oh, we're, we're talking about pankration and we're, that's that's like a special term. It's not it's not even a, it's not even a technical term in that way. It just means total force. And so then when it becomes a sport, it's the no holds barred fighting sport in the Olympics, except we're going to hold these 
specific things. These things are barred. Like they're just very few things. And it's it's a few of those things that that again kind of it's it's that tendency to say, well, you know, it, this is the right. This is the style. This is the 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 answer. If we could just all follow the Maffetone diet, then we would all be able to finally have the hero, the heroism of of the Cretan athletes. But the thing is, if you're using fat as fuel, that's great. You can work. You can run forever. Right, you can run, you know, ultra marathons with fat as fuel, and you can be very successful. But if you're going to try to play in the NFL, if you're going to try to be an NBA player just operating on fat as fuel, you might be able to do it. But it it can be advantageous to have access to some sugars in your bloodstream and so on to you know to facilitate uh, easier ATP uptake for more explosive movements. So, you know, not everything is a panacea. Not everything is, you know, if we can just do it differently, well, that's going to fix everything. Well, not exactly. But I do agree, you know, and I do agree with the principles, though. We should be eating more fat as a rule. And most athletes are better off eating more fat than sugar. Restricting to, you know, the slow, slow carb diet, basically. Good idea. But some of these things, again, it's just the tendency of, oh, pancration. And of course, I know Greek, so I looked at that and I just went, "Yeah, it just means they're fight." You know, he's using all the available resources. You know, he fought with everything he had. No, this yeah. is not like oh, he was trained in pankration, a special style of fighting known only to the Greeks. No, no, that's not what that means. I'm sorry. Anyway, well, I, I, it, it, the, the ironic thing about all that is that the story itself was gripping enough that it didn't really need to go into all this, but I don't know. Yeah. I mean, and again, I, you know, for me, I, I actually, again, I, the hard part for me is I'm so, I actually agree with so much of what, uh, of the direction that all this is going. I mean, my wife and I've talked about how fun it would be to open a gym that would basically just be an adult playground. Like, let's just have, <laughs> a couple outdoor jungle gyms and some obstacle courses and everything and just like set it up so that people go through for, you know, to see how fast they can get through it this way today or to, you know, just let people free play out there and how much fun that would actually be like adults. Do, like, wouldn't you want to do it? Yeah. They've got a ninja one in, in Atlanta or they've got a couple ninja ones in Atlanta and there's a, a guy at church who just did it. Yeah. He's, He's a drummer, and he came, and his hands were all taped up because he, he had to like climb <laughs> all the stuff. <laughs> yeah, I've, my my hands. I've got uh, I think nine different uh, blisters or uh, or tears in my hands right now from uh, from the pull ups that I did yesterday. Uh, the bar Jeez. was a little bit wet, and my hands were were sliding because it was outside. But uh, you know this this is a, this is a, a consequence of that. But you know it's a lot more fun to go out and just you know swing on the monkey bars with my brother in law as I'm training him to get back than it is to you know, just go through the drudgery of, of a normal workout. That's great. And actually, you know, you're going to get in better shape by putting your body through those, those sorts of things. That's one of those things that, that this book I think really nails. And I, I, I'm, I, the the thing is I hate to be critical of some of these things in terms of the hyperbole or, you know, the, you know, blowing out a proportion of pankration. And like I said, I, I need to get a term for like the, the fetishized use of foreign languages to talk about, there, you know, these this, these special words 
that are just typical, like normal words in those languages that are not, you know, technical terminology in the same way. Um, but, uh, but aside from those sorts of things, I mean, again, I, I actually am, I think most of the direction of this is right. And in that sense, I think it's a, it's kind of similar. And again, I didn't read it. You did. So you could probably say more about this, but it's kind of similar in that respect to, uh, to born to run in that. Yeah, actually I agree that a lot of the running shoes, the direction that they'd gone with the super padding and not just running shoes, but basketball shoes and all that was, was caught. They were causing problems because people were, were further away from the ground. You had these large, you know, heel, uh, heel rises and things, and people were ending up having injuries and so on, partly because of the footwear that they wore. But then mm. telling people to go out and actually run barefoot or to wear, you know, Vibram five fingers to go run a half marathon or something, and you're going to get you're going to get other types of injuries that are just that, that are potentially worse. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're not as bad, but, you know, you're going to get worse. And yeah, I wear Vibram five fingers myself, actually, to do certain types of workouts, but I ain't going running distance in them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so the direction of it is actually a, a nice counter to where things had gone too far in one direction. But then sometimes I think he just the, the, the way that he gets this enthusiastic response to swing the narrative too far in the other direction and take like, oh, we've got one researcher who has figured it out. And now we all just need to go completely to this extreme. That's where I, I, I come in and I go, oh, wait, 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 no, let's not go to that extreme. Let's let's get rid of some of these idiotic things that had accrued with the wisdom of the so-called mass or the so-called wisdom of the masses. But maybe we shouldn't all just be running barefoot or in minimalist shoes all the time. Right. That's not going to be good for us. Mm-hmm. There, there's a reason we actually started wearing shoes and it's because people were getting hurt, you know, with their feet and, you know, you step on things or, you know, your feet can't necessarily take that kind of running all the time and, and, and you know, running distance in bare feet. Uh, or minimalist shoes. Yeah, some people can do it. If you've got perfect biomechanics, if you have any flaw in your stride, you're going to get hurt. Yeah. So, well, I think that's important for for anyone listening who who is going to read this book or Born to Run, just to to, I guess, keep that in mind. It's it's not a. It's not the the end answer. It's not that this one guy has the right diet and everyone else is wrong. But um, but if, if you just kind of look past that. While you're reading it, there are, there are some some really wonderful things, and um, and a lot and of the, the direction story. is right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I think we we can kind of start to bring this back then to the big picture uh, and and bring our bring our conclusions of the book. Yeah, one thing I, I thought was really interesting, especially since uh, the story was so gripping, is we never find out what happened to the kidnapped German officer. <laughs> Uh, I I looked it up on my own, but it's like that you would just think that an author would want to tie that up at the end of just um, because he goes through a lot of the other other people in the book. I mean, he he even talked to some of them uh, that were still alive in in Greece. Um, And so I just found that peculiar that that uh, we didn't find out what happened to the to the German officer. Yeah, that that was a little bit odd. I, you know, I really liked the, like I said, I liked the direction of a lot of the things, aside from some of the hyperbole that I've already complained plenty about, you know, the idea of you, of, of uh, much more fat content and diets and, and moving away from, from sugar and high glycemic foods. I'm totally on board with that. 
more natural movement as 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 workout stuff. I'm I'm totally on board with that. Even though the fascia power stuff is um, uh, not something I would is not a term I would use. Uh, but yeah, the idea of getting out and actually pushing your body to move through space and to to actually do workouts that are more like you know natural play and and getting out and and you know cutting and and actually ma- you know moving around you know working mm-hmm. with a medicine ball or with you know uh, with normal objects throwing stuff you know kicking stuff these sorts of things that's that's better for us to be prepared for real life stuff that we might actually have to do than a lot of the uh you know than just going in and doing a bunch of deadlifts or or or, uh, or bench press or whatever i'm all on board with that I thought the story was extremely well done. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed this book a lot, actually. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think uh, I think for me, uh, maybe the biggest takeaway, aside from, you know, some of these things about uh, how science and, you know, the, the wisdom of the crowds, I guess this ties into that, you know, with science and pushing hydration and you know to that basically helps people end up downing lots of sugary drinks which then winds up people oh, people die from overhydration uh which you know that is 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 a good example of how how science can go awry with a lot of these things i think the the big takeaway for me of this book that i i think it makes it worthwhile maybe more than anything aside from just being a really fun read is the book does have this kind of ethos to it that says don't be afraid to think differently right think outside the box the masses you know the the, the wisdom of the masses you know what everybody's doing the, the 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 uh the assured results of modern science is often wrong so examine the research examine the uh you know whatever is being done whatever you know the the, the conventional wisdom is and test stuff. Test on your own. Uh, test on yourself. See if this works better than that. And don't be afraid to, you know, to go. You know what? This is the way everybody's done it. But why would I do it this way? And this is true for life, for everything else. Like, why? Why would I? Why is everybody else doing? I don't think I don't. That that's not appealing to me. Why would I do it the same way that everybody else does? This is a better way. Don't be afraid to well, do that because you may actually get better results. And and yeah. to me that that is one of the big takeaways of this book, and I think that makes it worth reading. Worth reading. It's one of those things that the uh, uh, I I just I, I really enjoy kind of getting the kick to think that way and to 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 uh, be on the alert for where conventional wisdom isn't necessarily right. Yeah, and I and I see you do that a lot. Uh, I've seen you do that a lot over the over the years, and then. Uh, Tim Ferriss, I think, is really good at that as well. He call, even calling himself the human guinea pig uh, <laughs> to try different things to see what works best and, and to stick with that. Um, and, and in this book in particular, uh, he highlighted what you just said of, of thinking differently in what he called the outlaw outlook. And I, I thought it was really cool. He, he called the outlaw outlook uh, this. Instead of relying on laws passed down from some god or a king, let's think like outlaws, let's think for ourselves. And that's kind of what he was saying the, the Cretans did is that they, uh, they had this outlaw outlook and then that, that helped them. And then I think that combined with, with your, one of your favorite quotes of, uh, of answering to one another. And, um, the, the book goes into when you, when you have a lot of people in authority, uh, the masses look to those people to help them in a situation, whether it's the police force, 
uh, government, uh, whatever. But if each person views it as his role to to be fit to be useful, uh, then you answer to one another. You don't you don't you don't wait for uh, the cop to come help you. You don't you don't wait for this to come help you. But but you really. Uh, take it on your own to, to as, as much as you can and, and but for the purpose of of being useful and, and helpful yeah and i think i think uh aside from where he uh just completely ignorantly blames uh the uh rise of christianity for people not doing that uh in more recent times and dang it i, I just cannot leave this alone prepare monologue and this is one other place where he steps into an area where i'm I am trained as an expert, and quite frankly, he steps in it a little bit. And that is this idea of the sort of classical or pre-Christian Greek ethos being at root, at the very root of what happened in, on Crete. That they were, you know, that they, these, these people were like, you know, Odysseus, and that they were, you know, more interested in pulling off a clever heist and, you know, it says, there, there's, this, there's this quote where it says, uh, this is in chapter 29, other religions condemn thieves as sinners and outcasts. But the ancient Greeks shrugged and decided, eh, let's give them their own God. Because who else will teach us that our stuff doesn't really matter, that our possessions are fleeting, forgettable, and that anything you have, any, someone else can take. What you'll be remembered for isn't your wealth and power, but your creative imagination, your metis. Well, first of all, the ancient Greeks did not shrug and... Uh, shrug off uh, thieves uh, at all. <laughs> in fact, you could be executed for stealing in certain cases. Uh, and so, you know, that, that doesn't actually, that doesn't work, first of all. And then you get, he says, the brazen metis of a thief. That was the animating spirit of ancient Greek. And it sparked the, an explosion of creativity unrivaled in intellectual history. The Olympics, the Acropolis, democratic government, trial by jury, and the dramatic rules of comedy and tragedy, Pythagorean and Archimedean geometry, Aristotelian and Platonic philosophy, the predictive cycles of astronomy and the humanitarian principles of medicine. It all came careening out of a tiny island nation so small and thinly populated it was as if the dominant force on Western thought for more than 3,000 years was the state of Alabama. That is all <laughs> BS, once again. This is not, first of all, the brazen metis of a thief was not the animating spirit of ancient Greece. I'm sorry, it just wasn't. <laughs> and secondly, first of all, democratic government. Maybe he needs to read what Plato says about democratic government. Because Plato thinks it's a disaster. Plato wrote the Republic because he was basically saying democracy is the worst and the only thing even even close to it as bad is tyranny, which democracy inevitably gives rise to. So you know what you need? You need some form of 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 uh, of, uh, of a republic in order to you know try to balance the better and worse parts of human nature and so on. <sighs> you know, oh, the predictive cycles of astronomy came out of Greece. Well, those predictive cycles of astronomy, first of all, we see some of those predictive cycles of astronomy on the other side of the world in, you know, Mayan civilization, first of all. So it's not like this was unique to Greece. And secondly, we see it a lot earlier 
in Assyria and Babylon and Sumer and Egypt. The Greeks took a lot from the Egyptians on this. I'm sorry. It just, it, this is, yes, Greece was super influential and Hellenism was, was a major factor in bringing various parts of the world together so that larger, larger scale knowledge could be shared. And yes, there were some tremendous philosophy that appeared in the Axial Age in Greece. And, you know, we're still dependent on, and we still discuss Aristotle and Plato and some of these brilliant Greeks. Absolutely. And yes, it, there is an outlaw outlook. Instead of relying on laws passed down from some god or king, let's think like outlaws, let's think for ourselves. Yes, there is a bit of that in Greece. You know, let's, let's create and not conform. But then, of course, then we conform. <laughs> Right? You know, and if you don't conform well enough, then you're going to be sent into exile because, well, we don't, we, we don't want someone who doesn't conform perfectly to what the deem wants, to what the, what the populace wants, to what the larger citizen body wants. Because if you think too much like an outlaw, we're going to go ahead and, and ostracize you and we're going to exile you because you're, you're not fitting in with the herd. So there's another way to look at this here. And then he says, okay, well, an outlaw outlook means freedom, which puts it at odds with BA, that is brute force. That is, you know, it just means force. And BA was for kings and conquerors like Alexander, for example, who was from Macedonia, you know, Greek speaking, was trained by whom? Alexander the Great was trained by Aristotle. That was his tutor. So, you know, maybe Aristotle's... Maybe, maybe using Aristotle as an example of the outlaw outlook up against brute force when his great pupil happens to be maybe the best example of brute force from the entire era is a bad idea, right? And this is where, you know, these sweeping generalizations in this book get him in trouble, especially when he comes into areas where, uh, where again, I'm an expert in these areas and I can actually test this. And I look at it and I go, Ugh. And he says, B.A. was for kings and conquerors, the mighty and the muscle-bound. Metis was power to the people, especially the weak and the poor who had no other, no other options. Achilles was bursting with B.A. and sneered at the schemes of Odysseus, who was equal to Zeus and Metis. Uh, yeah, but Achilles was also really skilled and uh, was not just bursting with B.A. I mean, he was, he was much more than that. Achilles' problem was not B.A., it was rage. Yeah. <laughs> Right. So there's that. And then he says, well, what happened? How is it that, you know, we we lost all this? How is it that, you know, we 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 wound up uh, getting, you know, for young Brits like uh, like Chan and Pat, like Chan and Patty, brute force was everything they were trying to escape. B.A. was boarding school beatings, Victorian prudishness, the blind obedience to the dogma of theirs not, make to, not to make reply, theirs not to reason why, theirs but to do and die, that sent their fathers and brothers marching into the machine gun fire during the Great War. And then he makes this statement. Weirdly, religion had a lot to do with it. Once the Greek myths were replaced by Christianity, the ruckus tribe of Olympians were replaced by just one god, Instead of becoming our own heroes, we were given a list of commandments and told to follow the rules, bend our knees, and wait for a savior. That might be the single biggest BS statement in this entire book. Because if you want to summarize what Christianity is not in terms of its, of its general dogma and its philosophy, it's that. Given a list of commandments and told to follow the rules, bend our knees, and wait for a savior. 
if anything, we see in the New Testament when they're preaching, when they're preaching Christianity, when they're preaching the gospel, and again, this is my area, what we find is, yeah, so stop just looking at the list of commands and love, love God and love neighbor. Find ways to love neighbor. And instead of being, instead of saying, don't be your own hero, it says, bring justice to the world. Your job is to love your neighbor and bring justice to the world, to be the, you know, this is the, the early Christian uh, concept of the being the body of Christ, that Christ has gone into, into the heavens and is now ruling his people through the, 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 his spirit. And the way that you actually are part of his people is you become actually his agent of justice. You actually become him, his body, actually working in the world to bring about justice. If that's not becoming your own heroes, I don't know what it is. So it's exactly the opposite of what he says. And it's remarkable how this gets turned around. And there's actually um, an interesting article actually very much on this in the New Statesman from not that long ago. This is from uh, September 2016 by Tom Holland, a, uh, a historian in, uh, in the UK, that wh where he says that the title of the article, and, and again, we'll, we'll link this in the show notes, is Why I Was Wrong About Christianity. The subtitle, it took me a long time to realize my morals are not Greek or Roman, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. And in this article, he basically goes, goes about uh, explaining how from the time he had been younger, he was reading traditionally you know, giant authors like Gibbon and other Enlightenment authors and basically believed, as he puts it, that the, quote, triumph of Christianity had ushered in an age of superstition and credulity and that modernity was founded on the dusting down of long forgotten classical values. End quote. And, and essentially he, he goes about saying that, you know, he had come to believe early on that, that Christianity represented uh, basically the, the world becoming gray, you know, the color, the fun being removed from the world and all of these aspects very much, again, along the lines of what we see in Natural Born Heroes here. But he further explains the longer and this, this is, again, a quote. The longer I spent immersed in the, in the study of classical antiquity, the more alien and unsettling I came to find it. The values of Leonidas, whose people had practiced a peculiarly murderous form of eugenics and trained their young to kill uppity untermenschen, that is, uh, under, uh, under cla lower class or underclass subhumans, essentially, uh, to kill uppity untermenschen by night, were nothing that I recognized as my own. Nor were those of Caesar, who was reported to have killed a million Gauls and enslaved a million more. It was not just the extremes of callousness that I came to find shocking, but the lack of a sense that the poor or the weak might have any intrinsic value. As such, the founding conviction of the Enlightenment, that it owed nothing to the faith into which most of its greatest figures had been born, increasingly came to seem to me unsustainable. End quote. And Holland goes on to conclude, Today... This is, again, a quote. Even as belief in God fades across the West, the countries that were once collectively known as Christendom continue to bear the stamp of the two-millennia-old revolution that Christianity represents. It is the principal reason why, by and large, those of us who live in post-Christian society still take it for granted that it, is to, that it is nobler to suffer than to inflict suffering. It is why we generally assume that every human life is, equal, is of equal value. End quote. And, and he's right here. Those are not fundamental convictions 
of the ancient world. And yes, there were people who did more or less hold to those convictions. Christianity didn't invent these things whole cloth. But the point being that the distinction that's being made here in Natural Born, Born Heroes is, is in completely and entirely mistaken. And this was, a, this was a, a, a shocking realization to him. And I suspect that it would be to McDougal as well, who seems to have a, a, a very inaccurate picture of Greek culture, which he, he's extrapolating from Crete in his own story and his experiences and so on. But you know what? The Cretans in this story are not classical Greeks. They're, or, they're, they're, they tend to be Greek Orthodox Christians. Hmm. You can't forget that part. Where are they hiding? In a monastery run by Greek Orthodox priests. Where are they getting the idea of how to steal from these Nazis? Who, who leads the charge? These priests, some of whom end up be, being put to death by the Nazis. Hmm. That part, I found, I found a little bit disturbing that that was left un, unstated. And the idea of blaming Christianity or, you know, by, by proxy, Christianity, you know, Nietzsche in this, in the, on, on the genealogy of morality, blames Christianity as Judaism's basic basically Judaism's puppet to have conquered its better masters, you know, to have conquered the the uh the Teutons and, you know, the the great Europeans who didn't share the weak moral philosophy of the Jews. Well the Jews couldn't conquer them by force, so they conquered them through the Trojan horse of Christianity. And now we need to escape that and we need to return to this. That's that you know that's that's Nietzsche's on the geneal genealogy of morality. And the interesting thing there is that for Nietzsche, the the, the classical thinkers, the these Europeans and such, were the embodiment of 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 power of 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 BA uh, rather than uh, rather than Metis, and it was actually the Jews who weren't capable of such power who used the the Trojan horse, this Metis, to actually conquer their their betters. Is this idea interesting? How that ends up kind of getting flipped around. It, by McDougal in this book. And, and it's, again, a fascinating uh, study in terms of how, in each case, uh, the opposite is used to critique the same basic target. So I, I, find, that, I find that part fascinating. You know, this, I, I'm, I'm wary of this kind of argument to say, oh, well, you know, that kind of monotheistic uh, moralism, you know, that's, that's taking us away from the kind of thinking that we should have. And I suspect that McDougall's emphasis on becoming heroes for our, of our of our own, and 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 I think he rightly thinks of this as saving lives and all these other things. Well, the honest truth is the Greeks that he's looking at in the in in the past, these classical Greeks would have sided with the Nazis much more readily than they would have sided with their with with uh, with their uh, resistors. These were imperialist Greeks who were quite happy to subjugate entire populations and, you know, rule entire slave, com slave communities. I mean, Sparta was mostly slaves, and it was held in check by a small group of citizens who, you know, they had no problem with a rite of passage where a Spartan citizen, to gain his manhood, would go out and kill someone who was really subhuman. They, they weren't really a citizen. Right? I mean, that's the... Come on. So, you know... If we're going to parallel that, 
you know, it was the it was the Nazis following that logic of of Nietzsche and others that we should be more like those Greeks who were not hamstrung by the the uh, the the commandments of the Jewish God. And so we should be heroes, which is a which is very much what Nazism held up as you know the ideal. We should be heroic and you know manly and all these other things, these virtues that they held up. We should be heroic. Well, their he- heroism was more like the Greek heroism. Achilles' heroism, even Odysseus's heroism. What's it about? They're conquering a city, basically to ra- to completely destroy a city because it, because a man's wife ran off with somebody else and he needs to uh, and and he basically collects all his allies to you know uh, to to save his own honor and and to get her back and to basically level the city where where that happened where where she where she ran off to is that hero would we regard that as heroic that's much more along the lines of you know that kind of invasion and you know Alexander the Great and all this stuff that stuff's much more along the lines of the Nazi invaders but what we do see is these Greek Orthodox Christians opposing them. So in that sense, it does get flipped a little bit. And I do think, again, I, I, I like the, the, the outlaw kind of thing that he's, he deals with. But yeah, the, the last piece of that, mm, I, you know, where, he, where he sets the blame and draws some of those, con- some of those other conclusions, I'm afraid he's, uh, again, he's tread into an area where I'm, I'm an expert and... Uh, my BS detector started going off pretty hard there, and, and it's an area where he would have done done well to uh, look a little bit harder, a little closer. Mm-hmm. Slash end monologue. <laughs> now, aside from that, and it is a pretty big aside, uh, I, I do think that this idea of an outlaw outlook is a great idea and, and, and is probably a pretty good place to conclude. I think, I think uh, McDougal's idea there is, is, is really terrific. It's a, it's a, a, a great lesson uh, and something that this book, uh, I think, does a good job of, of embodying in some ways, is, talking, is thinking in terms of you know, that outlaw outlook, uh, thinking, thinking for ourselves. And I think that's, uh, that's something we could all afford to do uh, a little bit more. Is uh, rather than following, uh, just following what everybody else does. One uh, one other thing that I just have to mention here in the in the conclusion, I couldn't really tie it in with anything else, but uh, he talks about Roosevelt going out of the White House, looking <laughs> in the distance, finding <laughs> one point, and just running towards it. It's so Teddy which, Roosevelt. Like if there's a river in the way, you've got you get you, know, you go over the river. If there's uh, something else in the way, you get over it. And I just love that. But it, it brings back that uh, I guess the play idea of of uh, of fitness or, or working out, and not just doing what I do of the same. I do the same track uh, every single day of of running, uh, the same one. But what if I just did that? What if I just picked a point in the in, in the horizon? And said, I'm going to run to there no matter what's in the way. There might not be uh, much horizon where you are. There's hills there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that, that uh, I like when, when, when I go to Scotland, I mean, I, I can picture just doing that because you can just see forever and just uh, seeing something in the distance. You know, you know it's going to be tough to get there, but, man, that would be fun. Yeah, you, your, your idea of fun. I'm not much on the, uh, on the you know, ultra-distance type running, as you know. I'm, I'm happy to run fast for shorter periods, but uh, 
but hey, if you if you you enjoy that, you you enjoy that. Uh, I've had, my body's been beat up a little bit more with uh, with my background. At any rate, that's going to do it for us today. Now, before we get out of here, just a reminder that you can follow along with us at booksoftitans.com, where we've also got some written reviews of the various books that we're going through here on the podcast. You can, of course, ping us on Twitter or Instagram at Books of Titans. And if you haven't already done so, you can subscribe to this podcast, find all of our past episodes through iTunes, the Android Marketplace, Google Play, Stitcher, your podcast manager of choice. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please make sure to give us five-star ratings and effusive reviews on iTunes or wherever else and share your favorite episodes on social media. We'll be back soon to discuss the next book, which will be Vagabonding by Rolf Potts. On behalf of Eric Rostad, I'm Jason Staples, and this has been the Books of Titans podcast. Keep reading, keep improving. Thanks for listening. I made this.